The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Great God, our King, you are good and gracious. We just sang it and now we pray it and say thank you. Thank you for being that kind of a God for us. We ask you now, would you please draw near and show us some of that goodness and some of that grace in this particular way. Help us to hear your word clearly this morning. Hear what's what's there to, to interact with it well. Help me to express it clearly. Would you do a work with this word in our hearts to move us Move us into deeper and wider and sweeter Christ-likeness for our sake, for the sake of the world, and for your honor. Please take this passage and use it this morning and help us to think about it clearly and well. Shepherd your people, you good, gracious king, you. Shepherd your people, please. Send your spirit to, to hold sway here in this room and take your word. Press it into your people. Lift up your son for your honor and glory and for the good of your creation. That's our prayer. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We've all seen the events this last week from the Christian school in Nashville we just prayed about. As we're told, a transgender man, that is, a woman, who was very troubled and confused about many things in life, and said she felt like she wanted to publicly live as if she was a man. That person murdered six people in a school. Not at random. At this point, it appears very much that she chose that school on purpose, in large part because there are Christians there. It's exactly what Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 are about. Persecution on account of Jesus. How do you feel about that? More specifically, how do you feel about the murderer? Not the murders, the murderer, the persecutor. If the two of you had met beforehand and you'd known of this plan or somehow were able to meet now, what would your reaction have been or be? I'm not asking about whether or not you would try to stop it. Of course we would and could, should try to do that, physically even. I'm asking about how you feel about and how you want to act towards this person. Does the word love come to mind? That's a tricky one. That's really tricky. We just, we just kind of felt, here we are a thousand miles away, we felt a little bit of emotion even as, as we just prayed for them as they meet to worship right now. That's a tricky one to talk about love of this other person. And in many ways, while there is still such raw emotion present, it might be better to hold off on discussing such a tricky and tender topic that is much more easily discussed in a philosophical abstract context. But here we are this week with that event 
and the passage in Matthew 5 that we've just happened to come to this week where Jesus talks about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. So here we are, and surely that is not by accident. This happens sometimes where something comes up in your life that nobody else knows about but you, and, and the passage seems to line up. Well, this is an example of that in a very large way. Here we are. For sure, we're going to try to be careful and sensitive with this. And I'm sure I won't say everything that should be said. We'll try to be careful and sensitive. And for sure, while love is mentioned here, as Jesus talks about loving evil people, that love does not make the person no longer evil. It does not remove the certain fact of God's eternal judgment of evil and of all people, and in fact of all people who have not repented and turned to Christ. God's judgment of sin is not completely eliminated or removed by God's love of sinners. God's judgment is not removed by the fact of God's love. So let's be clear on that. But we're going to be focusing a little bit more on this morning because the passage focuses a little bit more on this morning. is actually the flip of that. For sure, God's judgment is not removed by God's love, but also God's love of sinful people even evil people. God's love is not completely removed or eliminated by the fact of God's judgment. In a way, he loves even as he judges. That's what we're going to be looking at here. We've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount, and as we've done so, we've been in this section here in the the body of it in which Jesus has been clarifying much of what it means to be righteous before God and righteous here in this world, a a righteousness that far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees who, who majored on trying to figure out exactly what it was that God wanted us to do and then doing that. They focused on behaviors, and Jesus has been pushing for a superior righteousness far beyond that, pushing us into the heart. A righteousness before God that is because of the cross and a righteousness in the heart, different in the heart, that then comes out as purity in hands too for sure. That far surpasses what the Pharisees were about. And last week, we centered on this passage here, 38 and following, dying to self to give away life, to give away self for others. That's a direct bridge in today's passage, dying to self to give away self in love today. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're not going to be preaching about events, public events here. We're going to be preaching about this passage, but it's going to be against that backdrop, and it can't be otherwise. So Matthew 5 is our, is our focus this morning, verses 43 to 48. Let me read it and then draw out two observations from it. Five beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Two observations. Here's the first. Reflecting God's character, God's people love their enemies too. Reflecting God's character, God's people love their enemies too. For one last time, this section begins with this familiar introduction. You have heard that it was said. Jesus' followers had heard something taught that was a bit off. They'd heard, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first part of which is from Leviticus 19, verse 18, which reads, you shall not take vengeance on or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So there's the first part of that, love your neighbor. But the second part, and hate your enemy, that doesn't appear anywhere at all in the Old Testament. Nowhere. So where'd they get that? Probably from some combination of, you know, love your neighbor doesn't explicitly say anything about those who aren't your neighbors. Outsiders, foreigners, enemies, nothing. And in fact, furthermore, God did tell us explicitly when we came into the promised land to take all the people who were living here and wipe them out. To eliminate all of them. And, you know, furthermore, some of the psalms, some of the, the psalms that God gave us and taught us to pray, some of the psalms are actually prayers that God taught us to pray, prayers asking for God to bring judgment against wicked people, enemies who are vicious and who are oppressive in evil ways. So, put all that together, love your neighbor, and I guess, do not love the wicked outsider, oppressor, persecutor. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Some kind of put that together, that's what was taught. You've heard that. Verse 44, though, the kingdom's king clarifies. But I say to you, that's not what I meant. I say to you, love your enemies. Yes, the neighbors, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. What does that mean? Well, what it does not mean is that what some are always trying to say, fond of making it try to say, that, that the love of God here means, in fact, that in the end, God is the God of love, love, love. And what that means is in the end, everything goes. Everything is accepted by anybody, anywhere, at any time that they want. In the end, God's love triumphs, and everyone is okay with him, and everyone is forgiven, and everyone is saved, and everyone goes to heaven in the end, because God loves. People try to make it say that. That's not true. Those Old Testament passages that people grab, those are actually in the Old Testament. That's real. They they misunderstood it, misinterpreted it in ways, but those things are there, pointing out the reality of God's judgment. Whether it was against the peoples of the promised land, that God patiently waited, mercifully waited, waited for 400 years. In fact, that's why he sent the Israelites to Egypt in the first place. He told Abraham that. This isn't done here yet, so I'm going to send you away. And then after 400 years of unrepentant evil, he brought in judgment. And the Psalms are about the same thing. 
people taught to pray, asking God to bring his ultimate judgment against evil. And in fact, Jesus in the New Testament repeatedly says scathing things. Pronouncements of woe, which is the prophetic statement of judgment. Woe to you, judgment upon you, he says to the Pharisees, the scribes. And he teaches all the time about the reality of hell. Old Testament, New Testament alike. The judgment of God against all people who have not turned to him repentant in Christ. The judgment of God is real. The fact that he loves does not eliminate that. It's not what it means. So what does it mean? Verses 45 to 47 clarify for us. Our loving of enemies is meant to be like what our Father does. So we look here and see how it is that God loves people on earth, all people. The examples given here, just a couple of examples that kind of open up to a wider collection, they're what is sometimes called common grace. The ways that God commonly is gracious to the world or is, gives grace to people all alike in common. Everybody on earth experiences countless blessings and mercies and kindnesses from God. He makes his son. The son is his. He has the right to do with it what he pleases. And what he chooses to do with it is he chooses to cause it to shine on everybody on earth all alike. Evil and not. Both. And he sends his rain. The rain's his. He can send it wherever he wants to. And he sends it alike on the just and on the unjust, on the righteous and on the unrighteous. All alike. He sends rain and sun so that all alike can have crops grow, can have food to harvest, can have income, can have bounty to, to live off of and to thrive in. And we, we could expand that, of course, and say what that's just getting at is, is all kinds of kindness from God. Not just towards those who are his people. He gives people intellects and understanding and great wisdom and the ability to put many things together and to be creative and to enjoy music and art and he gives people families and he gives people children and he gives people fall leaves that smell so wonderful and moisture on the grass. He gives life to all the world. Not everybody gets it all alike, but the line that's drawn between who gets it and who doesn't is not Christians and non. That's the point. Indiscriminate, common, grace, even towards those that God knows full well on a spectrum. Never think about him once. Are in pursuit of other religious philosophies that are contrary, are openly rejecting Jesus, hate him, hate his people, and sometimes even act in persecuting ways. People that he knows are all on that spectrum and will be all the way through all of their lives and will never leave. He doesn't just show kindness to those who aren't his people, but he knows one day will be. Even those that he knows never will be. That's in the Old Testament. We see that in life. We see that in Jesus as he walked around healing people. Massive crowds of people came and Jesus healed indiscriminately. Not just those who would listen to his preaching. Not just those who would believe his preaching. Indiscriminately healed. Thousands. Showing them mercy. Common grace. Friends and enemies both. That's Jesus. Because like Father, 
like son, and we his sons and daughters too, likewise are supposed to be the same, loving our enemies with common grace in an attempt to do them good. An attempt to bless them and help them in whatever righteous way it may be that they need help. This is, it's so varied. We can't obviously control the sun and the rain, but we can, we can do many countless things, righteous things, but many countless things. Simple things like helping somebody across the street. Great things by giving people money. We can do countless things. Whatever it is that someone might need, doing what is right and good to help them and to help the city that is all around us in which we live, to love commonly all. That likely, almost certainly, is going to look a little bit different than what you might call deep-seated affection. Like a, a best friend or like a spouse or something. It, love's going to be a little bit different than that. And it certainly is also going to be different than how we love the body of Christ. Christians. But it's different love. Really, love. A married man is commanded to love his wife and to love all the other sisters in Christ. Different, but both are love. So we love our families and we love the body of Christ differently. God loves us differently as people than he loves his enemies, for sure. But it's still love. And ours must be also love towards not just our friends, not just other Christians, love towards outsiders, towards those who oppose us, even seek to hurt us. That's the call, the command from Jesus. An active love that looks out and sees their needs and sees their brokenness sees their losses and sees their fears, sees their shortfalls, and seeks to step forward and do good, to give away self in love. Not just last week, not just fending off the hands that are reaching out to you, but sometimes seeing I can help that, I'm near that, to step into the hand and seek to give to it, to help it. A giving, a praying love that seeks God on their behalf. For God to do the things that we can't. That they might be helped. So that's what he means by love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Look around at them and see them. See the people next to you, across the aisle, in the next cubicle over, across the street. See them, see their needs, and say, how can I help? That's what. But why would we do that? Well, there's an explicit reason given in verse 45. But that reason is really for another reason. Literally, it says... Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. But it's not how we become sons or daughters. Remember, this is already written to people who already are Christians. And that point is reiterated by the fact that Jesus twice here calls him our Father, our, your heavenly Father, both here and in the, the last verse. We, we already are sons and daughters. We already are in relationship to him. So he's getting at something else here. What he means is that this love 
is what our family is like, how we be in the family image. We bear the family resemblance when we love like this, which is an honor to God, true, which is good for us, true, which sustains the functioning of all the world around us as it kind of benefits everybody, that's, that's true too. But there's another obvious reason God calls us to this. God wants the truth of his love for sinners known in the world. The truth of his generous, giving, gracious, merciful, abundant, kind love. His nature. He wants that known. The big lie the very first lie told by the deceiver way back in the garden was what? God told you not to eat from that because God's trying to screw you. God's ways are bad for you. God's living here over you to try to hold you down and oppress you. You should go your own way and do what you think is wise in your own eyes. That's where you'll find life, not under the hand of God. God's here to take from you. Look, he said, you shall not. That's the big lie, the first lie told and whispered constantly all throughout all of life. And our flesh hears that and it it resonates with us a little bit because, because we are suspicious of him. It's what fallenness makes us. We are suspicious of him, and we are inclined to hear that and say, like, yeah, that rings true. It's the big lie told about God, that he's actually miserly, that he's actually here to take from and to oppress, and God wants it known that his way is actually the path of abundant life, of full, kind love, that he's a giving God, that he's generous and good and loving and merciful, That's who he is, and he wants that known about him, and wants that known especially to see the the big gift that he gives Jesus to answer the big question, the big problem in life, our sin. He's giving, he's generous, he's gracious, and he wants that known. And the only way that most will see that is if God's sons and daughters are like that too. Holy and generous and loving. If Christian people who stand for righteousness, who are humble and broken and mourn over our own sin because we take it so seriously and we know that it is so important, people like that are persecuted for that and yet still turn the other cheek and do not revile when reviled. Do not seek vengeance personally, but seek to make peace personally instead. Here, last week's passage here. If we give away our rights and our time and even our stuff and we go the extra mile to love others, to help them and to pray for them, to see them dealt with mercifully, then in that situation, something perhaps of the unexpected, surprising love of God might show through. And people might wonder if, in fact, there is something to this hope that we say we have. Because that ain't normal. Those people are generous and kind and patient Surprisingly, so maybe there's something to it. 
people may come to believe that there's something to this idea that God would love sinners enough to send his son to save them because he sent his people and his people act in gracious and saving ways as much as they can. We can't save them from the big problem, but we can save them from others. And when we act like that, we commend the gospel. We, we undergird it with an integrity. We, we, we create a soundness to the message that we, we speak. People won't know that God made the sun shine on them, but they will know that people who bear his name smiled on them and shone on them in gracious and kind ways. He told us to do this because it's good for us, it's good for people for sure, yeah, but especially because it gives integrity to the message of the gracious, loving God who gave his son. So love your enemies, Christian, like God does. That is a tall order. How do we get there? That takes us to the second observation. We can love our enemies when we die to self and take seriously the doctrine of sin. We can love our enemies when we die to self and take seriously the doctrine of sin. And as we start to talk about this, let me once again acknowledge that as I'm veering back towards current events for a moment here, that this is all still very raw and in some ways we'd better talk about this later. I'm sure that everybody in Nashville, that church, those folks there would agree with everything I'm going to say at another time. But what I'm going to say is not the kind of thing you would say to somebody in the middle of grief. We are a thousand miles away, and this has come to us today. We need to talk about it. But what we would do if we were right next to them is we'd put our arms around them and hold them and pray for God to comfort them. So here we are at this passage this week, and we need to talk about it. We need to think this through here. Because the thinking that we're about to do is how we get to the spot of loving, not hating our enemies. Or for that matter, loving and not hating anybody who's not our natural friend. Of course, that's the direction the passage is pushing us towards, loving everybody who's not just your friend. Everybody in the world does that. The Christian is different. So we're called to live out this difference by loving our enemies. How? Looking at this current situation in Nashville, if somebody somehow knew the attacker before and knew of the plot, or you could have contact now, how would you get to the spot of love and pray for like we just talked about? Well, not by making the mistake that some I have read in the media are making, given this person's claimed gender confusion. We're not going to look at a murderer and somehow twist this and make it so that the murderer is the victim. I say that right now so that we're clear 
and so that what I'm about to say doesn't get miscommunicated or misunderstood. One person is the perpetrator, the others are the victims. Let's be clear on that. Okay, so now let's take one more pass back through this. It's very important for us to do this. What actually happened on that day in Nashville? First off, an attacker plotted and acted and violently inflicted much sorrow and pain and emotional hurt on family, friends, white community, obviously. And they all grieve right now, obviously. But they do not grieve as those who have no hope. I don't know if you had a chance to read the one-line statement from the pastor about his daughter. He does not grieve as one who has no hope. Grieves with hope. Because secondly, when the attacker acted, what she did was, work on this, what she did was send those six to glory. We are told they were Christians, so they each are right now in the presence of Jesus. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, to be at home with the Lord is better than to be alive here on earth. We believe that. We believe that for them. Right now, they are with him and with no sorrow at all. They are with him in whose presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And they await the day of his coming when they will be raised to live forever bodily with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. That's true. And through our human tears now, through their human tears now, this hope is real. And so in a very real sense, it is accurate to say that those six are fine. Better than fine. better than they have ever been. That's the second thing that happened. What she meant for evil, God meant for good, for their good, and has actually carried it out. They are in glory. A hope that shapes the grief and something that we have to wrestle with for ourselves carefully because as I said, this is not the kind of thing you talk about in the middle of something. You just hold and pray. But this is, this is the, the surrounding circle that, that gives the hope to the grief. We need to wrestle with that for ourselves and see it in light of the situation. This is the hope that this life is going somewhere. For them it has gone. For us it is going. That is our hope that the kingdom of heaven is yours, Christian. 
We've rattled that off several weeks here, and now here we come to the point where you've got to say, to, do I believe that or not? Yes. This is the key to setting aside any, any claim to a right or any claim to a status or any demand for some sort of a, of a retribution here on earth. The fact that I know, I look ahead and I see that the kingdom is mine and, and the earth and everything in it is mine. Death is actually mine even because it takes me to there. I'm fine. I'm secure in Christ. This is the key to dying to self and dying to self is the key to giving self away. In love. You can't get to that spot if you're still holding on to, but I need. I don't need. I have Jesus and everything else too. The earth and everything in it is yours. This is very important. Self is secure in Christ now and for forever. And so you don't need to hold on to or defend self. You can give self away. It's true of us and true of our loved ones when persecuted. We need to grab a hold of that. It's the key to dying to self, which is the key to giving self away. Rest in that, Christian. It's true. It's true. It's true. So what happened was great pain was inflicted on people here and we grieve, but not grieve without hope. We have hope for those who are in glory and hope for ourselves, in fact. And the third thing that happened, the attacker plotted and acted. I say this carefully. The attacker acted and sent herself into eternity to face the judgment of God. From all accounts, it seems clear that she will face that judgment in unbelief without Christ. And Jesus himself was dreadfully clear about what awaits those who die without true saving faith in him. Let us say that very carefully, so to speak, with our hands over our mouths. Hell is real. And dreadful. And we do not wish that on anyone. And this reality itself should move the Christian towards loving, prayerful concern for the people of the world who are headed there right now. But actually the point I'm making here is slightly different than just that we should remember judgment and hell and be concerned for those heading there. Something a bit different that can move us to love and pray for others. Something seen in Jesus when he himself did this very thing, when he himself loved his enemies and prayed for those persecuting, prayed for those killing him on the cross at the moment. He prayed, this is in Luke 23, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
Father, forgive them for this. They don't know, not really. They don't really know what's going on, what they're really doing here. In one sense, of course they knew. They plotted this all. They, they trapped him. They concocted all sorts of false testimony. He was a threat. They didn't like him. And so they manipulated the system and acted so as to violently kill him. They were all totally conscious of all that. They did it. And they are culpable for it. Guilty. But in another sense, they had no idea what was really going on. No idea who Jesus really was, what his divine nature really was, what grace and love he was really offering, what they were really rejecting, what was really going to happen to them when they entered eternity, having rejected his gracious, loving offer of forgiveness. They were utterly spiritually deceived, blind to it. All of our enemies and all of our persecutors, they are all just the same. Aware. Conscious. Guilty. But they are also clueless. Utterly, spiritually deceived. This is the doctrine of sin. Realizing this, realizing sin's effect on people, its blinding, enslaving effect, is very important to how, to how we can shape our attitude towards the world. Sinners, we look out at, around at people, everybody around us, taken captive by the evil one, made to do his will. That's Paul in 2 Timothy taken captive, made to do his will. Blind and unable to see the true glory of Christ. Blind and unable to see. That's Paul in Corinthians. Dead inside, spiritually speaking. Dead inside, spiritually. That's Ephesians. And slaves in bondage can't free themselves. The blind don't make themselves see. The dead don't bring themselves back to life. To, to grasp that, the doctrine of sin, and to know who and what we're dealing with, who we're looking at, we realize flesh and blood are not our enemies, actually. Sin and Satan is the enemy. And to be like our Father in heaven and like our Savior, His Son, and like the apostles who are our human models, to live out what we are is to see that reality and see its crippling, blinding, enslaving effect on people and what it's going to mean, and to weep for the lost and dying world. To weep sometimes from the lost and dying world because of it, but also to weep along with it and to want to move towards it and help it, help it to see, help it to want to show to people who are blind, this is the truth, look, 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 this is the truth. And to pray and ask our Father in heaven, Lord, open their eyes. Because if you don't, and if I don't, they will remain blind. And what else can they do? So
certainly culpable and certainly guilty, but also blind slaves, dead. And what do you expect? Blind slave, dead. God must open eyes. God must raise to life. God must change. And so we pray for those who persecute us while we love them and attempt to be the instruments that God would use, the instruments in his hand to show this is what I'm actually like. Don't believe the lie. Don't be deceived by the deceiver. This is the truth. Look at my people as they perfectly model what I am. Perfectly model what I am. That's the last verse. And that does not leave it easy for us perfectly model what I am. Because you know, we mess everything up when we don't perfectly model it. This is what I'm like. Look at my people. Ooh. Don't look at them. That's really unfortunate. If God has to say, look at my people as they love you like... No, not like that. He wants to say, look. Look at, at the image of God filled with my spirit like me perfectly. You can look at that and you can see me. That's the conclusion to this section and the conclusion actually to the entire section. Righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees is Christ-likeness. Perfect like God. And no one can do that. I feel this, it moves me like this, like boom. Oh kills me. Who can stand? Who can never get angry and therefore never murder? Who can never lust and therefore never commit adultery? Who can remain faithful always? Who can always speak and love the truth? Who can die to self and give away your life perfectly and love others perfectly like your Father in heaven does? Who can do that? No one, no one but Jesus. And this sends us right back to mourning over our sin and hungering for righteousness to be filled and satisfied. This sermon will kill you and it'll give you life. I mean, this sermon, Jesus' sermon, will kill you and give you life. It shows us what the bar is when he clarifies for us in cold wind in the face clarity. This is what I call you to and you can't do it, but I in you can. I will make you righteous. I will make you perfect in standing and then I will inhabit you by my spirit to move you increasingly towards the righteousness that I've called you to. God help us. Lord, forgive me. Fill me with your spirit and move me to be one who takes the doctrine of sin seriously. This is our prayer. It, it takes the doctrine of sin seriously. It doesn't look at people and expect more than they can give or be. And who takes the hope of the kingdom of heaven seriously and therefore says, I'm secure and I can give myself away. Lord, would you help us to see those twin realities? The kingdom is mine and people are in sin. God, move upon your people. God, move upon me and on your people here and shape us with those twin realities and make us, therefore, then good ambassadors for you. That you would be honored here in the world and that people would be shown the truth about you and won to you.
for their good and for your glory. Please move in that way on us, your people, now. And as I pray, Lord, I, I just am again reminded of, as was James prayed earlier, right now, they are meeting to worship in Nashville, and we pray that you would draw near to them and give them a deep sense of the hope that is theirs. That sorrowing and grieving, they would not grieve without hope, but would know you, know you near and strong. Shepherd your people, good and gracious King. Build your church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.